Well, my, my name is Scott Reevely, and I usually spend my Sundays in Westland, but I'm very happy to be here with you this morning and to, to see what God has in His Word. It has been, in a, it's been a rich blessing for me. I've, I've been at this a long time, and it has been a rich blessing for me to, to go back through Romans 9 through 11 and to just spend time seeing what God has there for His church. Romans 9 through 11. If you, if you haven't been here the past few weeks, then I'll just tell you Romans 9 through 11 is a challenging part of the scripture. It's challenging to understand. It's certainly challenging to, uh, to preach about. So I'm just going to say that. Uh, one commentator that I uh, read uh, said this. They said that Romans 9 through 11 is as full of problems as a hedgehog is of prickles. Many have, this is, guys, he's British. Many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. So I want to invite you to turn to the puzzle, Romans chapter nine, and we'll, we'll take a look at what God has there. Now, Romans chapter 9, I mean, as a puzzle, it's there, and for the life of me, I read it and read it and read it and said, why is this here? That's why it's a puzzle. And it seemed disjointed, and one of the things that I'm discovering is it isn't disjointed in any way. It is so tightly woven with chapters 1 through 8 that you cannot miss the fact that what God was saying about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope before God is firmly rooted in Romans chapter 9 uh, and 10 and 11. Having said that, there is a problem that 9 through 11 addresses without uh, apology. And that is the, the question, has God broken his promise. The reason he asks, how has God broken his promise is because God had promised Israel that he would bless them, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And now, in Romans 1 through 8, he's told them that salvation comes not from being one of God's people, Israel, but rather it comes by faith in Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And if that's the case, what about this promise over here? Has God just decided not to keep that promise? Has He thrown that promise away? Has His Word failed? And that's the key question, and it's in chapter 9, verse 6. Has the Word of God failed? If the Word of God's failed, Israel's in trouble, right? Because God's promise to them failed. But, it's worse than that. If God's Word has failed, you are in trouble. And I am in trouble because how could we trust God with His Word again in the future, these future promises, if in fact He's failed in the past? If He's dropped the ball there, what makes us think that He won't drop the ball now? Well, his answer immediately there in Romans chapter 9 is 
that the word of God has not failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he spends a whole section there saying, you think it was to Abraham, but it wasn't it was to Abraham's children, but it wasn't to all his children. From the very beginning, God didn't mean for it to be ethnic because it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. And it wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. And so not everybody who is a sinner from Israel is part of this promise. It, it wasn't, as you presumed earlier, primarily ethnic. That's a, the first answer to the question, has the Word of God failed? He picks up a corollary to the question in verse 19 or verse 14 when he says of chapter 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because you would say, if you're thinking about it, that's not fair. How can God take Isaac but not Ishmael? Jacob but not Esau? That, I don't like that. That's not fair. Is God unjust? That's a really good question. In fact, both of these are good questions. And his answer to this one he spends the entire time on is that God is free to show mercy on whom He'll show mercy. God is free to show compassion on whom He'll have compassion. And in order to accomplish His purposes in the world and His purposes of mercy, He is free to harden whom He wills. So we've got a two-part answer to the question, does God's Word uh, fail? And is God unjust? And he says, no. God intended His Word to be for an elect few from the beginning. And then, just because it's for an elect few does not mean God is unjust, because God is sovereign and free to show mercy. That's His answer. Now, I'm sure, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that that hasn't been completely satisfying, right? That still doesn't make all my problems go away. And I still have to say, I don't know about that. I'm not sure that that answers the question. Because if God, if God is free to show compassion to whom He wills, then how can He, how can He you know, find fault with people? How can He condemn people if they had no choice anyway? Because He did some electing there and He's totally free. If God's free and people aren't free, how can God hold them accountable? Isn't it wrong for Him to condemn them? Well, you know what? You're not the first to ask that question. That question's in verse 19 of Romans 9. You see, he's, he's just sort of walking all the way through these very problems. And the question is, how does God still find fault for who can resist God's will? Okay, at least he's admitting the issue, right? God is free to show love to whom He wants to show love. To show mercy to whom He wants to show mercy. And for those outside of His mercy, how can they resist His will and how does He still find fault? <laughs> now, He's asking all these questions. This is just a review. You've seen these before if you've been here the last few weeks. 
The answer to this one is particularly not satisfying. Verse 20. But who are you? That doesn't really help me. Because <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, I'm something, you know, I think I'm something. And he says, well, who are you? That's, and that's the issue, isn't it? Is that we, we are not ready to let God be God, to let Him be above us, and us be different than Him as creatures. We have a problem with that. And so those are his questions, right? Is God's words failed? Is God unjust? And then, um, why does God find fault? Those are the main questions. And we're still answering those questions now that we get to chapter 9, verse 30. That's why I wanted to just review because we're still working on those questions. How can God possibly find fault? So, so let's begin reading in chapter 9, verse 30, and I want you to see his answer, because it's really fascinating. What shall we say then? Chapter 9, verse 30. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I'm just going to give you the, the, the big picture here in hopes that you have a little bit of satisfaction. Because the first part of the satisfaction is, who are you, right? And we say, that. okay, I need something more. Then what he says now is that, yes, in fact, Israel is accountable. Yes, in fact, Israel is responsible for pursuing God in the right way. And they've not done that. What they have done instead is to make the law the way that they uh, gain righteousness before God. What they have done is they have established their own means of righteousness with God. And they're accountable for that. God is not going to let people pick and choose how they are going to approach Him. Okay, that, that's kind of the big picture here, but at least for me, that's more satisfying to say, because I was scratching my head when, I, when He asked the question, how is God going to find fault? And then He said, who are you to ask? 
Now he says, how is God going to find fault? And he says, he's going to find fault because people are trying to establish their own righteousness in ways that God is against. And that's not going to work. So that's the the quick overview. Let's take a look at what he says. At the end of 19, so he's still working on on an awful problem. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed or an offspring or a remnant, a small little bit of people who are part of the promise, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay, this is part of that unsatisfying answer, right? Yeah, I, can you imagine that? I mean, somebody, imagine me just you know, coming to visit on a Sunday and saying, oh, you're just lucky you're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, that's what Paul's saying to them. Okay, guess what? That's what I'm saying to you. You're lucky. You're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if God had not been faithful to His promise with a few, then you would have received His wrath like Sodom and Gomorrah did. Like Egypt and Pharaoh did. Okay, those are His pictures back there in Romans chapter 9. And so even then, I'm still like, I don't really like this. So He picks up the question for me. Alright? Verse 30. What shall we say then? Yeah, we need to say something because we're just not happy about Sodom and Gomorrah comparison. We're just not happy about this. So, what are we going to say? Okay, this is what he says. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That's not where we thought he was going with this at all, right? He was talking about the Jews missing. Now he's saying the Gentiles have received the righteousness that comes from God, even though they were outside the covenants, even though they were outside the patriarchs, even though they were outside the law, even though they were outside Israel. They were not pursuing it, and they've received it. They have attained it. It has come to them. That is, what? A righteousness that is by faith. So the first thing he tells us here is that there, surprise, surprise, there is a group who did not look like they deserved to be counted righteous by God. And they were. I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. I'll show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And in God's freedom, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it. That is, or because they pursued it by faith. They received it by faith. Then, he takes the other side of the coin here and he says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Now here, this is, this is really interesting to me. Because you have Gentiles not pursuing, and then you have Jews or Israel who does pursue. But notice what they're pursuing. The the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it. 
But it doesn't say Israel's pursuing righteousness. They were pursuing the law. They're pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness if they were to attain to the law, if they were to reach that law, to do what the law demanded of them, it would have made them righteous if they were to use the law in the right way, they would have, but they didn't. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed, notice, in reaching that law. Not so much in reaching righteousness, but in reaching that law. They could not do what the law required because they approached it in the wrong way. They approached it to establish their own righteousness instead of by faith. I'll come back to that in a moment. But even as we've got now this this um, clarity that the Gentiles who didn't pursue it received it by faith and the Jews who did pursue the law didn't receive righteousness because they didn't attain to the law, we have this ethnic divide which is a problem. There is a racial issue in this church. But it is a racial issue that finds its roots in the promise and the law of God. It's a theological divide of sorts. And what Paul has been saying all along in this book is, and and I'm just going to show you Romans chapter 2, where it says, He who is physically uncircumcised, meaning a Gentile, someone who is outside of the law and the covenants and all of the things that make Israel Israel, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision, but break the law. And then, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, this was the problem he had been addressing way back at the very beginning when he said as God's Word failed, because not all Israel is the children of the promise. Because you have been misdefining what it means to be a child of the promise. You've been defining the child to being a child of God or being belonging to God as your ethnic identity. You've been defining it as your religious practice. Now, I'm just going to say that it may not be ethnic for us, but it is very easy to get stuck on the way we practice our religion and think that that's the thing that defines us. That we have to do it a certain way and doing it a certain way makes us in with God. And those who don't do it a certain way are out with God. Okay, that's there's a little liberty on my part there. Okay? Because that's what the Jews were doing. They were defining by practice of the law what it meant to be a Jew. They were defining externally what it meant to be in versus out. No one is a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. 
But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So he's been saying this all along, and now he is applying it to this church that is conflicted because some think they're superior to others. There are some in the church who think they have it. They have the whole thing, while others only have part of the thing. The Jews have the whole thing because they have all the history and they're truly, truly in. And the Gentiles, they're second class. And so there is, a, there is tension here for the Jews and the Gentiles. But the tension is they have been defining themselves in the wrong way. And you can define yourself in the wrong way too. And that's the glory of the Gospel. That's the beauty of what we have even remembered when we've remembered the Gospel here of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That that is the thing that defines us. Not whether we go to Westland or Wilsonville. Not whether we are uh, an evangelical or progressive. Now, whether we grew up in the church or whether we didn't grow up in the church. There are all these things. And what he does then is he, is he backs up and he, he's asking this question. Okay, who are they and how do they come about being who they are? In verse 32 he says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But, as if it were by, based on works. The problem with why, why the surprised people are in and the expected people are not in is because the people who expected they would be in turned it into uh, a system of merit, a system of works, a system of defining who they were by what they did. And that is spiritual death. It is spiritual death to a church. It was spiritual death to Israel. And what they did is they found themselves outside of the promise because they weren't believing that promise. That's the thing. Instead of believing the promise, they were believing that it was the quality of their effort. Now think about this. You're thinking, shame on them, right? But think about it. Maybe, just maybe, some of you have sinned this past week. I'm going out on a limb. What What did you do about that? See, I'm just going to say, when I sin, I think I need to feel worse. And I'm not sure how much worse. So I keep trying to feel worse. I think I need to, I think I need to do better. Right? Than not sin. And so what do I do? I try and do better. And in fact, that'll, that'll sort of even be the conversation I have with God, right? I'm sorry. I'll do better. As though my acceptance and the forgiveness of that sin is based on how sorry I feel and how good I do. Guess what I've done? I have just turned this into something based on works. 
And I bet I am not the only one in this room who does that. We talk grace and we do works. And that's a problem. Okay? Jews didn't talk grace, so they're, you know, that's not what he's talking about here, but we do. We'll give lip service to it and then we'll go on and we'll say it's going to ultimately depend on whether I get my act together finally or not. When, in effect, it depends on Christ, period. And that has always been the case, as we'll see in a minute. So, turning it into something that happens by works is an issue. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, he says. And he quotes from Isaiah, As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. As you think about that, you're thinking, hmm, what is this stumbling stone? I'm going to suggest to you that it is, it is one thing, one person, but it shows up sort of in three ways. I'm just going to suggest that, okay? They have stumbled over the stumbling stone and Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. What's he talking about? When he quotes Isaiah here in verse 33, he's quoting Isaiah who is talking about Yahweh is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. God Himself, they've run up against God and God is saying, that's not how I accept people. That's one thing. Here in chapter 9, they pursued it by faith Based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, I'm laying in Zion this stone of stumbling, rock of offense. And the law, as a definition of how I'm accepted before God, is that I, I run up against that because that will never work. And then, if you've heard sermons on this particular quotation from the Old Testament before, you're probably ahead of me, saying, ultimately then, that rock is Christ. See, I don't know that they would have seen that in Isaiah. But what Paul does is he kind of rolls that together. And we'll see that come together in chapter 10, verse 4, when, in fact, the end of the law, Christ is the end of the law. So it's ultimately bumping into the law so much that it gets me to Christ. That's the issue here. And who is responsible? God Himself. And so that, they have problems by bumping into this rock. Because ultimately, what keeps you from being crushed by it is faith. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Back to why the Gentiles got accepted, right? So then, in chapter 10, my brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is where uh, some of you have. more problems. Right? He says, God's word fail? No. 
God elects some, not others. Is God unjust then? No. God's free to do whatever He wants in saving some and not others. Well, how does He find fault? He finds fault because they pursue it by works, not grace. Well then, what is the point of praying for anyone if God has already decided it? Never heard that before. (laughs) Apparently, the apostle who wrote Romans is still praying for Israel who was pursuing the law in the wrong way. In whatever whatever doctrine of election he has just espoused doesn't change the fact that he loves them and wants them to be saved. I would suggest to you that his prayer is precisely because he understands that the only way they will be saved is if God Himself shows them mercy. So why would I not ask God to show them mercy? So I think if, if you go farther than that with your doctrine of election, like forget praying because God's already decided. Okay? And you get some things scrambled in like that and you just say forget them. You have, you have missed what God is doing here. You have missed the point of this. The point of this is that God is free to show mercy, so I'm begging Him to show mercy so they might be saved. See, this is beautiful that He has not written people off simply because He thinks they might be outside. He's going to pray for them. And I suggest you do the same. Would you please pray for people that you think are outside God's promise and ask God to show them mercy? Well, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because back on the same thing. They have a zeal for God. The zeal for God thing is pretty interesting to me. And it... Uh, Because one of the objections I've heard for a long time about Christianity um, is that, you know what, I, I think that if you're sincere, that's what God really wants. That if you're sincere, God will, of course, Accept you. Now I want you to look at this. They had a zeal for God. Okay, I'm going to translate that. They are sincere. I would say, I think zeal is beyond sincerity. Okay, sincerity is like a five, zeal's a nine on a scale of ten, one to ten. I mean, they are, they are beyond sincere. And he's telling them, you are sincere for the wrong thing. You are sincerely wrong. Think about that. Right here. I mean, Jesus Himself is very clear. 
when Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is clear. It doesn't matter how sincere you are about something outside of Jesus. But here, this is the same thing He's saying here. You can be zealous and fired up and sincere and miss true saving grace from God because you're pursuing the wrong thing. And what they were pursuing, what they were zealous for, is this definition of who I am, who we are. So I just want to counsel you to please be careful about defining who you are by external measures. Okay, you are going to be tempted in two days to define who is truly Christian by the way they vote. Just going to say that has happened to us before. You know what? That is an external measurement about who is in and who is out. You can be zealous. Okay? You can, you can bring petitions. You can campaign. You can be all in on something. But just know that that's not the thing that's going to save anyone. The thing that's going to save anyone is going to be faith in the Messiah who has been the point of God's promise all along. And I'm just going to say, I mean, I didn't mean to pick on things that are on, on the vote that's going to happen on Tuesday because there are countless other ways that churches and Christians define who they are. And there is really just one way. I am united to Christ and so are you. And if you are and I am, then we are together in the promise. Doesn't matter what kind of music you like, if it's different than what I like. Doesn't matter if you don't like us to have communion early in the service or late in the service. It's really, are you united to Jesus and am I united to Jesus? And that is the basis of our unity. So that's where he's going with this. Verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. That's ultimately what it is. is a submission to the righteousness of God expressed in the law, focused on Christ. And if I am trying to get more done on my own, I'm missing out on God's righteousness. If I want to make it about how sorry I am, about how good I'm doing, I am, I am doing exactly what they're doing here, missing the righteousness of God because I'm trying to establish my own. This is the problem. And it's a, I think it's a problem of the human heart. Just happened to be here a, a Jew Gentile problem, but now it is a human heart problem that I have and that I sub, would suggest other people have too. Instead of submitting to God's righteousness, it is my submission to Jesus that it ultimately accounts for whether or not I receive righteousness from God. And that's what verse 4 gets us to finally. So this is, 
once we get here, after all that I've said, and all, after all he's talked about establishing righteousness through the law, we get to the statement that says, for Christ is the end of the law. I want you to be careful about how you ask questions and how you think about this. Does that mean we don't need to do the law? Does that mean the Ten Commandments don't count for us anymore? Those are all the wrong questions. That's just the wrong question. The question is, what is the law for? The law is for the establishing of righteousness. By faith in God who grants righteousness through Christ. And I'm going to suggest to you, it has been from the beginning. See, he's been going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Isaiah. The whole way through, it has been the righteousness of God expressed in the law, found in Christ, given to believers by faith. It's been that way the whole way through. Misunderstood, but that's the way it's been. And so here he says, Christ is the end of the law. Now let me just give you an illustration that I hope helps you with the, end, the whole the phrase, end of the law. Because we think, oh, that law, that was bad. Now we have grace. That's good. I'm still thinking about it wrong. Okay. Think about it this way. The end of the trip is the destination. You get where the trip was taking you. You don't need to take the trip anymore. You're already there. If I take the trip and I get where I'm going, I'm the, that's the end of my trip. No need to travel. And it's not because my trip was bad. You see, it's precisely because my trip was good that I got to my destination. Which is why, I think it's in Romans 7, he says, no, the law is good and right. And so Christ is that destination of the law for righteousness. Okay? In other words, what you were to get out of the law was that you need a Savior to make you right before God. That's what you can think of. That's just simply what righteousness means, right before God. It, it, Christ is the one who makes me right before God to everyone who believes. So it it really lands for you where it has landed all along. Will you trust God or not? Will you trust the promise of what God is going to do for you through Christ or will you not? Because ultimately it comes down to a promise to everyone who believes. And so throughout the scripture, or throughout Romans, that's what he's been getting at, isn't it? Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. That's the theme, right? He says that um, the rights of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
What? So that everyone who believes is redeemed by Christ and God um, puts away His wrath against their sin so they are forgiven. To the Jew first, also to the Gentile. All comes the same. He's been saying this all along, but now it comes to the point the destination is Christ. Will you trust in Him or not? You see, that's what makes someone a Christian. People come to church and they want... The, the pastor didn't tell me like how I'm supposed to be better to my you know husband or my wife. He didn't tell me how I'm supposed to parent my kids. He didn't tell. He didn't give me something to do. The point is not to give you something to do so you don't establish your righteousness apart from Christ. My point. The point of coming to church is to be reminded: my hope is in Jesus alone. The righteousness I need is in Jesus alone. He is. The end of any attempt that you may make or you may feel that you need to make of trying to establish your own righteousness. And may God be praised that He has made Jesus the centerpiece of all of history and granted you the mercy to believe Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the simple uh, news. Again, the simple reminder that in fact, Jesus is the end of the law. Jesus is the hope of sinners. And so, Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is still trying under their own power, under the, the, the steam of their own effort to create righteousness or goodness or merit with you so that somehow you might accept them. God, would you just give them grace to surrender that this morning and to submit to you so that in their submission to you they might find the righteousness that comes by faith uh, from Christ and they might give up trying to create it on their own. God, would you help all of us to trust more certainly and firmly in Christ and be united with one another because we do it together. In the name of Jesus, amen.